Thank you for joining this special edition of Harper Audio Presents, where we are excerpting the new novel from Ryan Gaddis, who has been compared to Richard Price, George Pelicanos, and Dennis Lehane. The novel, All Involved, publishing from Echo Press on April 7th, 2015, takes place over six days in 1992 with the LA riots as backdrop. Today's excerpt is from day five, Sunday. The novel contains profane language and some violence and is not intended for children. If you have children listening, you'll want to turn the podcast off now. We'll serialize a children's book later in the year and this is not for them. Ryan, please tell us who Termite is and how he's related to the murder victim, Ernesto Vera. Sure. You know, I think uh, aspiration, particularly in the face of overwhelming odds, is, is so core to this book. And, and with Ernesto's early passing, I'm not sure if anyone embodies that and carries it forward uh, better than the character of, of Termite, Jer- Jeremy Rubio. It's as if Ernesto's death lit a fire in him or perhaps passed a torch it made him realize the preciousness of life and the greater dangers of Los Angeles. And, and more than that, I think it made him want to get all the way out and leave the city. Uh, when we join Termite in this section, he's just had a particularly unsavory experience in Faith's neighborhood while trying to pay respects for Ernesto. It has only steeled his resolve to leave and made him realize how fruitless that objective might prove to be. But first, he needs money. He pays a visit to his and Ernesto's employer, Taco Salunico, and goes from there, doing his best to play every angle, all the while starting to realize how necessary it is to leave something behind for Ernesto before he goes. And here is narrator Anthony Ray Perez reading from Day 5 from All Involved. Three. You don't really think what a nice day it is until you think you're going to die. But now... I look up after several smoky days and find that I can see the sky again through partial clouds and it's blue. Well, it's like a gray blue, but it's warm. Over 70 degrees, probably. And under that sky, on Atlantic and Rosecrans, on the roof of the building where the Taco Salunico stand is in the little strip mall, is a guy with sunglasses on, an automatic rifle, and a bulletproof vest. That's Rudy. He's Guatemalan, but he's cool. He does security for us i never seen him with that kind of gear before, though, and I don't know where he got it. It's a little unnerving if you want to know the truth. I wave at him, and he doesn't wave back. He nods. I wonder how long he's been up there. I mean, El Unico's always open, even through curfew. It's been like that. He must be switching with somebody, I think. Before I get to the door, I say hey to James, the homeless dude, because he's standing in the parking lot leaning on his cane. James is crazy, but he's mellow. Comes by a lot. Ernesto always used to feed him, no questions asked. You know that shit came out of his check, too. And I always told Ernie, I said, you know that makes it harder to save up when you're trying to scrape money together, right? He always told me not to worry about it. A taco here or there wasn't going to stop his dream, and it helped people, so that was always worth it. Just remembering him saying that, I shake my head. Hey, James says to me, do you know where Ernesto's at? He tunes out when I say I don't know. I feel bad not telling him what happened to Ernesto and all, but I want to make this little homeless dude feel bad. He liked Ernesto plenty, and I can tell his life's been rough. And I don't want to add to that or take on the responsibility of feeding him the way Ernesto did when I'm already planning on being out. I say bye to James, and he says bye as I head for the front door. Inside, 
There's some National Guards sitting and eating. They say what's up to me, and at first I think, what I do? But they're saying hey to everybody who comes in. I keep talking to them, though. Not everybody does. They say they got hooked up with free food, and it's so good. Best tacos and burritos they've had, they say. And that makes sense, because they're mostly white and black, and I don't know what, but I can tell. They don't have anyone cooking Mexican food for them at home. They're from Company C, they say, stationed in Inglewood. 3rd Battalion, 160th Infantry, they say. They've been here almost the whole time and gesture across the street. I look to the 7-Eleven convenience store there and see some sandbags and stuff on the corner where there are four more of them. And I can't tell from this distance, but even in uniforms, they look like cholos to me. It's just the way they stand. At that point, guards in the restaurant can't really keep quiet about it any longer, and they tell me I smell pretty ripe. And at first, I don't know what that means. But then I remember the dog shit and I apologize and duck behind the counter. I nod at the chef working and start washing the cuff of my flannel good with soap and water so hot it burns me a little. I get my hands good too because being here reminds me so much of Ernie, of how he used to call me out and everything. We didn't work much here. We mostly worked the truck, but every so often we'd be in the stand together and he'd give me endless shit about not washing my hands. Turns out, spray paint gets on your hands pretty bad. I'd always wash them after, and the color would come off the skin, but it stayed stuck to my nails. I'd try and try to get it off, but eventually, I'd give up and come in and chop for them. Tomatoes, meat, lettuce, whatever. But the first thing he'd do was always look at my hands and bust me fast. Ernie'd say, What the hell are you doing? Why don't you wash your hands? I did wash my hands, I'd say. They're clean. How come your nails are still blue then? How about that? They're clean, I'd say. Listen, someone hands you a plate and they got paint on their hands. Would you want to eat that? It's gross, man. Don't do that. It's not professional. And then I'd be like, what do you know about professional? Listen, he'd say. And his tone would be different, calmer. I'm not your dad. I'm not telling you what to do with your life. You want to paint on your off time? Okay, go crazy. Have your fun. But once you're 18 or 19, maybe you need to think about knocking that graffiti shit off. Because that's the kind of thing you do county time for. And they don't like that stuff in there. Ernie was always my voice of reason. Always hitting me with constant reality checks. I didn't really want to hear it, you know? With him gone, I guess I need to take that on myself from now on. Which is tough. Because I kind of don't want to. It's hard. I get to dry my hands with the paper towels before rolling one up in my cuff so it looks like one sleeve is white on the end. I stare at the sink for a few seconds before going to the back and asking to sit down with my boss. He's got a tiny desk in a little supply closet. He's pretty much paisa, so he loves sitting down behind the desk and holding court. I don't know where that word comes from. Maybe we stole it from the Italian paisano and turned it into a Spanish word or something. To us, though, it means something like fresh off the boat means to Orientals, I think. Somebody from the old country that still acts like it. Somebody not American yet. Or maybe they never will be. My boss, he's a good dude. Sometimes you just have to remind him to be one is all. Behind his back, we call him listo listo. Because he always asks if we're ready before a shift in a real annoying way. Every day, like, listo listo? He repeats himself like that all the time, so much that you get to feeling he doesn't actually think you're ready, so he's always reminding you to be. I don't know. Sitting across from him, I smile. He likes when you call him jefe, so I start that way. 
Jefe, I say. I worked the week before last, and then Monday and Tuesday last week. And on Wednesday, you sent me and Ernesto home from the truck. So, in Spanish, he tells me he was real sorry to hear about Ernesto, but that's not really his business. And speaking of, things are tight right now with the banks not being open. Maybe tomorrow he can pay me, he says. I can see he's lying to me, though. I've worked here long enough to know we do most of our business in cash. That's how it goes when you sling a lot of food to people who may or may not be documented. So flow is definitely not our problem. If anything, we got too much sitting around in the safe because the banks have been closed and he's nervous about it. That would help explain Rudy with the gun on the roof anyways. As cool as I can, I ask about his wife. And he says she's good. So when he says that, I make sure to ask about his girlfriend and he freezes up because he knows who I'm talking about. One night, two months ago, I was out dropping trash in the dumpster and I saw something going on in his car. And I thought for sure someone was trying to steal it. So I crept up and ended up seeing something I didn't need to see. But I'm glad I did. I mean, how was I to know that he'd be fucking some girl from behind in his back seat? Even better, I knew who she was. Cecilia something. I don't know her last name, but I'd seen her around. Mostly with that curly-haired dude with pits in his face called Momo. That one is legit bad news, man. He always orders lengua tacos. He loves him some beef tongue drenched in salsa verde. Like, so much that the taco basically falls apart in his hand, and when it does, he finishes it off with chips. Don't ask me why. I drop a hint to Listo that maybe Momo was responsible for what happened to Ernesto, and what would he do if he knew my boss was with his girlfriend? I let that kind of fly around in the air, and he gulps as he thinks about it. I don't feel good doing it, but I think Ernesto wouldn't be mad at me because Listo used to try to fuck him out of money too. I don't know what you're talking about. Listo says, and his eyes look kind of panicked. Whatever you say, jefe, I say. I believe you, man. Listo doesn't like anything about doing it, but he leaves the room and comes back with $291 in cash and says he has to withhold for tax and whatnot. I don't fight him. I say thanks and leave. He doesn't tell me not to come back, but that's the message. I'm okay about it. The bridge is burnt to a crisp, but it's a start. I got a nest egg. Now all I need to do is grow it up and hatch it. 4. Tortuga, Fat John, and me are all standing in my cousin Gloria's garage, which is sometimes where we meet up before missions. I let us in with the key I know Gloria keeps around the side in a little stucco hole she plugs up with the rock. I tell her not to do that, that it's not safe and somebody's going to steal her car someday. But she keeps doing it. You'd think she'd learn. Sometimes people don't learn unless bad things happen. Fat John says, Why are we here again? I know it's not to say what's up to your cousin and her sweet tits. Just wait, I say, too focused to get mad about the sweet tits comment. But before I can say what I want to say, Tortuga slaps me on the shoulder and nods at me. Well, I thought we were here because shit's going crazy out there, he says. I heard your cousin's homeboy puppet set some fucking homeless bum on fire. Just like chuck gas on him. Little match and whoosh. Shit. Sleepy does have a crazy ass junkie homeboy named Puppet and I've met him. It's bad news, man. I stared at Tortuga for a second and the only mental picture I got in my mind is James going up in flames. Shit is gross, man. It turns my stomach. This whole city is officially off the rails insane. Once again, I know I got to get the fuck out of here. Right now, today. 
That's bullshit, I say. Besides, we're not here to tell stories and gossip like a bunch of bitches. We're here to do some business. I didn't expect Gloria to be home from work yet, but her little Geo Metro is right there in the middle of the garage, red as can be, kind of blocking where I need to get to. So I climb over the trunk, and it dents a little under my weight, but pops back up when I get off. And I go under the tool bench that's built in the wall that she never even goes near, and I pull out my grandpa's old army bag that's olive green and taller than me. It clinks and clunks as I drag it over the concrete. Tortuga says, Is that what I think it is? When I've dragged the bag back over the car, I plunk it down on the oil-stained garage floor, unzip it, and say, Check this shit out. Holy. Fat John makes a face like he can't believe what he's seeing. What the hell, man? You're a legend for this, Holmes. Tortuga says, Yeah. Fat John says, yeah. We just stand there for a minute, counting the cans. There's 47 cans of spray paint in that bag. And the only time most people have ever seen that many before is in the store. I got Krylons mostly in silver and black to keep it Raider style. Got 30 of those. The rest are all mini tester cans in red, blue, and white. I've been stocking up to go out with the bang. It's obvious. Well, shit, Tortuga says. Now I know what you've been doing while everybody else was keeping his head down. Straight up racking cans. Stealing cans is exactly what I was doing. I hit up Ace Hardware and put everything I could get my hands on in a backpack and ran. Up until now, Fat John and Tortuga didn't even know I had any. I'm not stupid enough to ever show these paint fiends this much paint at one time. Sure, we're friends, but they'd fuck me over. They'd get drunk and break a window if either one of them was thin enough to squeeze through the opening and gaffle the whole bag. This is also why I won't be telling them that I need to be getting the hell out of Dodge, too. Because the less people that know, the better. I got tips, too, I say, and pull a little baggie out, one full of yellow and blue and purple glass cleaner tips that you can switch on to spray paint canisters to make the paint spray out with different techniques and styles. One's a Windex tip I stuffed a bunch of needles in, and when you use it, paint flares out real good. I picked that one out and put it in my pocket. They can't have that one. It's special. Took me forever to figure out how to fuck with it just right. Fat John sells weed sometimes. I know he's got cash on him. A buck a can, I say. I'll throw in a few tips for free. They both look at me like I'm crazy. But then Tortuga asks if I got mean streaks, and I say, no, just spray paint. He nods at that, like, okay, and then he starts doing mental math, so I let him. I pick out the cans I want first, ten of them, in Ernesto's favorite colors, black and silver. After that, we cut up the rest real quick. Batjan takes twenty, and Tortuga snags the rest. Batjan has to spot Tortuga, but only when Tortuga promises to hit him off with the money next week, along with some cakes and things from his mom's panaderia, when she opens it up this next week, which sounds like a fair deal. I pocket the $37 and add it to my stake from El Unico, which takes me up to $328, all told. Now the business is settled. Fat John asks what's going to happen to our crew with the merger and to Big Fate's click happening. He's worried too. The three of us are part of a click that's part of a bigger crew. A crew that started up way far away from here and feels even farther than that now. Tag bangers or not, they can't protect us from getting absorbed into a gang. To be honest, I don't know how the soldiers rolling up on Big Fate changes the situation. It might, but then again it might not. 
and I don't think I want to hang around to find out. Do it or don't do it, I say. That's really all the choice there is now. Like, Tortuga says, can't we call the main heads, though? I say, they're not answering pages because they're putting in work up in Northeast. But I don't even think that matters now. We live in Linwood. They don't. True, Fat John says. That's true. Tortuga says, so shit's on hold until we drop crew and go in with their neighborhood? Pretty much, I say. And you sure? Fat John says, that you don't want to join up? Even with that being your dad's old neighborhood and everything? Hey, I say, I'm not going to do this forever, but right now, this is what I'm about. Why do you think I do graffiti anyways? I don't like people telling me what to do. What, I'm going to join Big Fate's clique and have a bunch of new motherfuckers telling me what to do and how to live? What's the matter? Tortuga says, you don't want to end up like your old man, locked up 23 hours a day and fucking a fifi? I don't hit back verbally. I give Tortuga a real good glare, like, all right, motherfucker, that's your free one. As far as a fifi goes, I really don't think you want to know. When I found out, I wished I didn't. So I change the subject. I tell them that everybody knows me as a bomber, but I want to do pieces too, like illegal though. They nod at that like I'm preaching, but then Tortuga says, how are you going to do that with the green lights on? I got a plan, I say. What plan? I'll tell you later, I say. For now, I got to go see my cousin. Sure you do, Fat John says and grabs his dick. I punch him in his stomach, playfully, but hard, you know? So he knows he can't insinuate shit around me anymore without some kind of payback. Tortuga laughs and we all say goodbye. When they're gone, I wait for a good five minutes and check the garage door windows to make sure they're not hanging around or nothing snooping to see if I got more paint and I'm just hiding it. I don't, by the way, but they'd think it. After that, I throw the tent cans for Ernesto in my backpack and I pull something else out of the bag, something they didn't see. It's my throwaway gun, a black twenty-two pistol, because you can never be too careful. When I got it down good and firm in the back of my waistband, I pull my shirt out over it, do my belt up, and go inside to surprise Gloria. Five. Gloria's on the phone when I get in, twisting the cord all around her finger like it's a ribbon or something. She jumps when I shut the back door and gives me a look like I just stepped on the back of her dress or something. The phone's mounted on the wall in the living room, and she takes a step forward and tries to shoo me out of the kitchen. But the cord's not long enough, so she gets jerked back and comes up looking real mad, especially when I smile wide at her and go in the fridge for whatever's in there. I see cheese pizza wrapped up in plastic because Cousin Gloria is boring and doesn't like toppings on her pizza. And I see some Chinese food in its little white containers. And then I see something worth seeing. There's some tamales left over from what her mom made for Christmas. Gloria must have unthawed them from the freezer the other night, but couldn't finish them because they're sitting where the eggs usually are. I pick one out and pray it's sweet corn, queso, and jalapeno one. But when I sink my teeth in, I find it's the boring pork. Gloria waves her hand at me kind of frantically to get out and looks disappointed when I don't. Instead, I finish the whole tamale in two bites without using a plate. She glares at me then, and after that, her voice gets real quiet on the phone and she whispers to the person on the other end that she's really sorry, but she has to go, and she'll see them soon. And then she hangs up and comes at me with a hand in the air. She swings and misses, and I make the mistake of laughing because that's when she gets me square on the cheek. 
She gets me good, too. Like, bam. I see a couple quick stars, and as I'm rubbing my jaw where it's still stinging, I say, hey, that's not nice. That's not ladylike behavior, you know. She picks up a mug, sips, and says, I don't care. You weren't invited. I'm family, I say, and shrug. Like, what would your mom even say if I told her you hit me? She'd say you deserved it, probably. My aunt would never say that. Yes, Gloria says, she would. We glare at each other for a little before I ask her if she's got any money I can have. I don't have any cash, she says. Sure you do, I say. You were saving up for the TV and everything. She puts her head down and says, That money's gone, Jeremy. She calls me Jeremy when she's serious, so I back off a little. She wets a cloth and dabs at the floor where I was eating the tamale and must have spilled. After she tosses it in the sink, she tells me she had to spend all that money on something, but she won't tell me what. She tells me I'll understand someday. After that, she gives me $10, but she says that's all she has because she and her co-workers want a scratcher's pool at work. I seen her go in her purse and everything, so I can tell she's not lying. Ten bucks really was all she had. That's me at $338 then, which should just about be enough to get me to Phoenix and start it up, I think. I hope so anyways. After she hands me the ten, she says, All right, have you seen Aurelio or what? Her little brother's older than me by two years, but I haven't called him Aurelio since we were kids. Sleepy, sure. Sleeps. Sleep machine. Sleeperton. I call him sometimes, but not Aurelio. Never that. I haven't seen Sleepy and haven't heard about him. Why? You think he's out fucking up or something? She shrugs, which means yeah. Not only does she think that, but she worries about it. Constantly. I decide to change the subject so I don't got to hear about it for 20 minutes. Where's Lydia at? Where's the little man? Together, Gloria says. She took Mateo to the Chuck E. Cheese to give me a break. Hey, I say, changing the subject again. Can I borrow your car? She gives me a good long look over her white tea mug that she must have been sipping on while she was on the phone. It says, Gilroy Garlic Capital of the World on it. It has a little drawing of a garlic head on it, too. It's done all up in a green outline. For what? A thing, I say. So to do that graffiti nonsense you do. No, I say, and I think I play pretty cool, pretty genuine. But yes, to do graffiti. Obviously, yes. Sorry, primo, she says. I can't. I got a date. She hasn't had a date in as long as I can remember, so I say, with who? Is it that Cookie Monster dude? I'm playing, obviously, because Cookie Monster's from the neighborhood, and he's 300 pounds, give or take a couple burgers. But she throws a banana at me from the fruit bowl on the counter, and when I duck it, it hits the door to the garage and then falls to the floor. As I pick it up and put it back, I bug her to tell me who she's got a date with, and I keep that up for like three whole minutes. But she's real serious all of a sudden and won't tell me. She just kind of smiles to herself and twists her hair like she was twisting that phone cord. Finally, she cuts me off with, I gotta take a shower. You better not be here when I get out. I nod, because I can do that. And when she leaves the room, I go in her purse and fish them car keys out. The ones with the little Mother Teresa charm on the ring. I feel bad taking a ride, but not that bad. She'll understand when I'm safe in Phoenix and I tell her all about how I did it because I didn't want to be a gangster. She'll be glad. Maybe not today, but someday. I know she will. She loves me. She wants me to be safe. Six. I'm not a total asshole. I am a little, but not all the way. 
I do take Mateo's car seat out of the back first, and I set it on the floor, not even in an oil stain or anything. After that, I roll the garage door up as quiet as I can, put the car in neutral, push it out, shut the garage door, lock it, put the key back in its hole with the rock, then start the car up and get rolling. I need to get to my aunt's place and pack up quick before Gloria finds out I took the car and calls her mom and they both freak out on me. It's a little complicated. I live with Gloria's mom and dad and her bro, Sleepy, but her dad's only home about eight days a month because he's a truck driver and Sleepy's never around, so it's usually just me and Aunt Isel. She and Gloria don't really get along too good because Gloria's not married and had a drug dealer's kid in sin. And right now, she and my little kindergartner second cousin are living with Lydia in the house their grandmom left to them. I'm with Anisel now because my mom is back in Mexico. She left me in California because she thought I had a better shot at being something here than there. My aunt in Phoenix, the one I told you about, that's my mom's sister. So anyways, like I said, complicated. Soon as I turn the ignition on, some musical jumps out of the speakers. And even worse, I know what it is because Gloria made me listen to it before. That song, America, from West Side Story. She says it's all smart and well-written and I should learn to appreciate it, especially coming from where I come from. But I think it's fucking gay. I eject the tape and throw that shit in the back where Mateo's car seat used to be. I'm trying not to get it lost somewhere in the pile of clothes she's got back there. This thing is a closet on wheels. She's got like three different coats piled up on each other, a few pairs of shoes, all of them white and clunky, arch support specials. I shove my mix in the deck. Text Ritter's High Noon from the Gary Cooper movie gets near its end and stops abruptly because I fucked up the mix and cut the tape before the song faded out. But it had to be done. I only get 30 minutes aside on these cassettes. I got it to swap meet, and besides, I wanted Hurry Sundown in there, a song that makes a lot more sense to me on today of all days. It's about having a bad fucking day and wanting it to end quick, so you want nighttime to hurry up and come. That's some Hugo Montenegro music, totally underrated. It starts out eerie with the guitar and humming, and then turns into a duet, and that rolls up like a wave and breaks at the end with a full-on chorale. It's almost like a spiritual. Well, I think it is, anyways. I decide to take right road to the 105 so I can scout if there's any way I can paint the underpass if it hasn't been totally done over by now. The first time I ever fell in love with tag banging was standing on Rosecrans facing the 710 freeway when everything in my field of vision was bombed with black spray paint. I'm talking the curb in front of me, the sidewalk, almost every inch of the wall 30 feet high, the fucking palm tree next to it. Man, it looked like a ninja army did it. That day changed how I see the world. It made it so I don't see concrete so much anymore. I don't really see walls or even buildings. I see opportunities, you know, a place to put my mark. I see big, permanent canvases just waiting to be hit. Hang on, there's some sheriffs and fire trucks up ahead of me and it looks like they're detouring people onto Fernwood. At first, I can't see why, because there's a big, tall jeep the color of brown puke up in front of me with the flat spare tire still stuck to its back gate, but as it turns onto Fernwood, I see why we can't go through. There's what looks like a big city truck under the freeway, and it's completely burnt out, and so is the concrete under there, too. Right as I'm about to turn, two firemen release the back gate, and it falls. Ash goes everywhere in this big black cloud as the singing on Hurry Sundown fades out and something new starts up, one of the real weird songs on this mix. 
It's an old Sesame Street track, Be Kind to Your Neighborhood Monster, from a totally genius and totally ignored album called We Are All Earthlings. And I'm always kind of stuck between shivering and laughing when I hear this song. Because I guess that stuff means something a lot different to me living where I live. I mean, I don't picture hairy purple monsters when I hear it. Put it that way. I picture trollo dudes with tattoos, shaved heads, pulled up socks, and a long, perfect crease in their khaki shorts. It's my turn to turn right, and I can almost see into the truck as the sheriff in his brown uniform and hat is trying to wave me through. And he looks back at what I'm looking at and freezes for a sec like he can't believe it either. And then when he turns back to me, he waves me on faster. I blink because I can't believe what I'm seeing. Behind me, somebody honks. Holy shit, I say to nobody at all, trying to make out the black shapes on top of each other. Are those fucking burnt up bodies in there? The tamale in my stomach tells me it's in danger of pressing the eject button, so I gulp, look away, and speed the hell up. I might be completely wrong, but if Fate's Click did this, it makes a ton more sense now about the goon squad rolling up and kicking doors in. A ton more. I'm in a haze, more focused on what I saw than what I'm seeing now. I mean, I think I saw an AK-47 sticking out of there, and so much ash. Fernwood becomes Atlantic, becomes Olanda, and I'm passing right again on Olanda when I kind of click back in and stop in front of my Ani Selis place. I go in the back door, real grateful it's not a restaurant day. Sometimes my aunt runs a little restaurant out of here, and I help out. She's from Tlaxiaco in Oaxaca, where they do some real traditional Aztec dishes. A couple days a week, we put tables on the back lawn, and she cooks for people that come up. She bakes chicken thighs and yellow mole that she cooks in a clay pot for like two days first. She does tortillas from scratch. Around here, she's famous for her lentejas oaxaqueñas, though. It's two bucks for a bowl of little lentils and pineapple and plantains and tomatoes and spices. Anyways, today is her normal prep day, and some neighborhood markets finally opened back up this morning. So she's out buying ingredients, which is good for me because I'm in and out like a thief. I'm snagging my toothbrush and paste, my aerosol right guard, my Santa Fe cologne, before grabbing my vandal kit, a little G.I. Joe logo pencil bag I've had forever. I stay maybe two minutes after that, throwing my t-shirts and jeans and sweatshirts and socks and underwear and my favorite Reeboks and a little round-ended duffel. I take both black books with my sketches, and that's it. They got my other aunt's letters and her address in Phoenix for bookmarks. From the kitchen, I take peanut butter and all that's left of a loaf of bread. Maybe five pieces. I'm back to the car and pulling it out before anyone even knows I'm there. My only thought is to cruise by a few layup spots and hope I get lucky. 7. Did you know that San Francisco is only 7 square miles? I didn't. When Fat John told me that last month, it kind of blew my mind. Because L.A., she's endless. There's beaches, hills, tar pits, mountains, downtown, desert and a big old concrete river. We go on and on. We're our own fucking country. I feel that now more than ever. I'm cruising Linwood, looking for layup spots. I check one I know of on Atlantic and on the other side of the 105. There's nothing, though. I keep my eyes peeled for parked buses. They're almost always a small street off a main one, like a few layers back from a boulevard, maybe in an industrial area, or a cul-de-sac with a shoulder big enough to park a bus 
And sometimes RTD just sets buses aside for whatever reason. Like, they might be having mechanical problems, or some dude got sick, or was late for a shift and wasn't able to come in and take over, so they just got to park it till somebody can pick it up and drive it back to the yard. Or maybe there was a big fucking riot that lasted days, and service was disrupted, and shit went unaccounted for. Buses are like the holy grail of graffiti right now, because it's a prime way to send your name all over the city and show everybody what you're about. All my life, people have said graffiti is a menace. They say it's completely useless. I get the menace part, because it is. But it's not useless. For me, it's like a video game. It's taught me how to use maps, how to navigate. It's taught me about politics, what gang is where, who owns what, places you can go, places you better not. It's taught me to watch my back. It's taught me how to be bold. When I started, I was just a toy that didn't know shit. I was gun shy, but over time, you get good if you keep going and you learn and you adapt fast. It made me freer. Well, that and Ernesto did. I got that shot up house of his in my head again. I kind of can't believe he lives with those people, with big fate in the same house under the same roof, without being involved. It hits me now how bad he must have wanted to get out, and that shit makes me sad. Ever since we hit up that sushi spot with the railroad tracks all out in front of it, he wouldn't shut up about it. He had plans, that guy. All kinds of plans. It was inspiring, you know? Made me dream too. Made me want to be more than I was. Made me want to be freer. So I put in work. Now I am. Every insane vandal needs a kit. In my passenger seat, I got my backpack with my pencil case in it that's got six mean streaks, some sandpaper squares, and two scribers. And also, there's a spray paint I grabbed, Krylons and testers. Sandpaper is only for big scribes, and spray paint is self-explanatory. But mean streaks are the L.A. marker. You can write on anything with them. Cars, glass, metal, anything. It's solid paint. You twist at the bottom when it runs down at the top. In fact, you can even twist them all the way out, cut them vertically, and blend colors together. Lately, I've been getting psychedelic, so I cut my streaks three ways to combine yellow, white, and blue. Scribers are drill bits that look like arrowheads with their sides filed off, perfect for carving over anything, especially glass. I check another layup, and again, there's nothing. I'm starting to get discouraged. Like I won't have anything to pay tribute to Ernesto with, and I got to start making a list of walls in my head if I come up empty one more time. Damn it. I want to hit a bus so bad, though. That's status. They're the daredevil shit right now. Because there's a million ways to get caught. It's non-stop, cat and mouse, all adrenaline. Drivers are always looking out for you. Undercovers have always got their running shoes on and their little fanny packs for their badges and cop shit. Sometimes, whole crews take buses over and try to tag the entire interior, even the ceiling. And I heard once about how an undercover tried to lock a bus down so, like the hundred dudes inside it had to bust out the emergency exits and run not to get caught. Like I said, it's the Wild West out here, I'm telling you. I hit the third layup spot right behind Tom's Burgers on Norton by Imperial and MLK. And I'm driving by thinking, fuck, another wasted layup. When the sun bounces off a windshield and almost blinds me, I turn Gloria's car real fast, completely by instinct, and pull face up to a perfect bus. And I mean perfect. Maybe it got left here only minutes ago. Maybe yesterday. Who knows and who cares? 
It's in front of me and it's pure, unbelievably. Not a single motherfucker has tagged on it. I'm the first. I get to take its virginity. It's hard to explain, but I feel so lucky that I'm actually paranoid. Like, is this a setup or what? Are cops staking this shit out? Trying to catch writers? I guess they got bigger things to worry about. But then I figure, if it is a setup, fuck it. I have to at least try. This bus can be my legacy. If I hit this right, heads will talk about it for years. Years. I don't even really remember parking in the closed-up bank's parking lot across the street, but I did, because I'm here, and the car is off. I unzip my backpack and go digging my pencil case as I step out of the car. I'm so excited right now that my mouth's drying up, and I'm babbling to myself when I pull my headphones up and on. 8. Feeling like I'm buzzing down to my toes, I go straight for the front of the bus. I hit play on my Walkman. That's when Wagner and his Valkyries ride straight into my ears. Just hearing them strings starts me getting hyper, getting all into it. I'm so excited, I'm shaking. So I take a quick deep breath and try to calm down enough so my hand doesn't twitch. When I let it out, I'm good. Still though, a virgin bus all to myself? A virgin GMC bus with the tinted side windows I'm about to hit with the streak I just cut last night? My God, dude. I feel like I died, went to heaven, strolled through them pearly gates, and Marilyn Monroe just begged me to sex her. My heart's still going crazy wild fast in my chest, smacking on my ribs as I hit a destination on the front windshield. Fucking brand new streak, dude. I uncap it and it smells like Windex, perfectly like Windex. Tagging the windshield's called a destination because that's where the name of the destination is on the bus, at the top, above the driver's head. But that's blacked out right now because the bus isn't on. But right then, I decide to scribe first instead. I pull out my scriber and catch a big one right where the driver's face would be, going F-R-E-E-R, with all kinds of punctuation and everything as I dig the glass out. But here's the crazy shit. I do it backwards. That way, everybody in the bus will see it as they're going, and people in front of the bus looking in the rear views will see it too. I wait for a sec when I'm done hitting it. If there's going to be sirens, if cops are going to swoop up, it's going to be right now. I wait 10 seconds, and I wait 10 more, and then it's shopping spree time. Time to go crazy. I take my mean streak I did up with white, yellow, and blue, then stand on the front bumper and go as fucking big as I can. I go top to bottom, taking the whole glass, going F, R, E on the left side, and then skipping the little black bar that splits the windshield in two, and then I go E, R. I spend an extra few seconds making sure every one of my angles is tight. I fix up the last R and make it so sharp the legs could cut somebody. After that, I put X's on the right legs of my R's like in a pharmacy, because my style is like medicine. Under all that, I tag my crew name. I never had this much time before. Ever. Anytime before this, when I hit a destination, it was just a little one on the left outside, and I hit those when Fat John's running interference, arguing with the driver about transfers, and I'm leaning and scribbling it all on perfect. But this, this is a masterpiece, damn it. This is what free all about. 
I hit two big outsides on the left side of the bus. One letter per tinted-out window. I do some throw-up letters with crisp, right-angle outlines, like some high school letterman jacket shit. And on the entrance and exit side doors, I do some vertical handwriting styles where I loop like fucking crazy, and I might as well be twirling spaghetti with my street. I'm so into it that it's not until I'm done with the front entrance door that I notice the driver left his fucking RTD jacket, which, trust me, is a huge fucking score in the graffiti community. He must have left so quick he forgot it. I don't know how long it takes me to kick the bottom glass out of the door, but when it's all the way broken, I wriggle in and grab the jacket. I shrug it on, and it's one size too small, but I don't even care. I keep it on because it's like wearing the pelt of a bear I kill. That's how much rep it's worth. As I'm tripping on that, I realize doing a scribe on the inside would be insane. So I knock another one out on the windshield right next to where the ticket machine is, so everybody will have to see it every time they ride. And then I duck back out. The right side of the bus I hit fast, in a big one-liner, which means I just hit the tip of my spray paint and spray in one long line, not picking up as I transition from letter to letter with my silver Krylon. I kind of cheat, though, because i never done it before, and the whole thing ends a bit before the last wheel well, so I go back and put a few loops and arrows to make it look like it's flying and everything. If I had more time, I'd make it a whole piece. But it's not safe just sitting out here. Every second that's passing is about to give me a heart attack. I feel like cops could roll up at any time because this still stinks like a setup. But I can't help myself. I saved the best for last. On the back of the bus, the part that's facing the street, I get up on the bumper and I lay down a sketch of my letters in silver and fill in like a motherfucker. I keep it real blocky like it's a big silver mirror on the black back of the bus that looks like blinds, and you've got to shoot up underneath them to make it look solid all around. On top of my silver fills, I do thick black outlines on the letters, writing E-R-N-I-E. It pops so hard that you can probably see the black outline letters with shining silver middles from two football fields away if you've got an angle on it. I even spray little cracks and crevices over the top of the letters so it looks like the rocks, kinda. In the bottom leg of the last E, in Ernie's name, I do an R.I.P. in black. After that, I stash everything back in my bag and grab my disposable camera out. I start snapping pictures from all angles, front, side, back, other side, low, from far away, up close. And it's when I'm up close that I feel eyes on me and turn around. About 30 feet back, there's a little kid watching me from a bank parking lot. I take my headphones off and turn his way. Nine. He's 12, maybe 13. He's got dark eyebrows, though, and big, dull-looking eyes. His hair's all slicked back, and he's dressed like a little G, but he's breathing with his mouth open. He's a mouth breather. I give him a look that he doesn't respond to, so I say, You want to hit this up? I mean the bus but he doesn't move. He just keeps staring at me. So I tell him to come over, and he does. He gets right next to me when he looks at my Ernie piece and says, What is it? It's a tribute piece, I say. Who for? I look at it, and then I look at the kid, and I'm thinking, Is he this stupid? But he's squinting, so I just figure, Fuck it, might as well state the obvious. A guy I knew named Ernie, I say. He passed away a couple days ago. Kid nods at that and doesn't follow up with anything. So I say, 
You not interested in graphing at all? Nah, not really, the kid says. I seen the gun in your belt while you work, though. I'm interested in that. How much? I don't know, I say, as I measure the kid up and pull a number out that I figure he can't afford. A hundred bucks? I got fifty, he says. And I watch him pull a $50 bill off a wad that has a few more on it. That's cool, I say, like, no thanks. What, are you slanging for somebody or something? Where'd you get that wad anyways? He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He just holds his hand out with a hundred in it this time. Take it before I change my mind, he says. I give him a look like, who are you trying to mess with, little man? But I figure, you know what? Fuck it. I trade him the gun for the cash and pocket it. Kid looks at the pistol. He turns it over in his hands before taking it with his left, pointing it at me and cocking the hammer back. My smile drops off my face. Not because I'm scared, but mainly because I can't believe this little banger just tried to pull that on me. Give me the hundred back and everything else you got, he says. Now, I'm up to $438. If this little dude thinks he's getting his hundred back, he's stupider than he looks. And that's pretty damn stupid. I say, you know that shit isn't loaded, right? He eyes me like he thinks I'm trying to trick him. Check it, I say. I'll wait. I take a step back so he can feel safe to check without me taking it away from him. He pulls the cylinder out, and I see him put it right up to his face. I see his brown eye and all its dullness through one of the empty holes. He blinks. Make sure you buy 22 caliber bullets for it, I say. That's the only size it takes. I'd say hit up the gun store and go in the quarter bin for the littler ones, but I heard that place burned down. Yeah, it did, he says. So, 22 caliber? Yep, I say. Okay, he says. Out in the distance, I hear a helicopter humming. I say to the kid, you got named yet or what? He looks around. Maybe. He says, I'm guessing that means no, and I'm about to hit him with one to think about when this woman comes stomping around the corner of the little medical center across the street, wearing a short-ass skirt and heels that have been worn down from too much walking. She's got black hair, and she's older than me, looking mid-twenties and torn up. Even from a distance, I can see sores on her mouth and a black eye. Hey, she says to the back of his head, and he doesn't even turn. We going or what? I'm not trying to be rude, but I say the first thing that comes to mind. That's your mom? Oh, you better shut the fuck up, he says with a snarl. That's my fresa, Holmes. That bitch sucks my dick. Jesus, I fucking hope not. Not with all them sores, but I got nothing to lose. So I say, man, shut the fuck up. You're so young, you can't even get a fucking heart on. Grabs his belt and says, whatever, Holmes. His fresa says something, too. Yeah, he can, and it's good, too. Fresa means strawberry, slang for the type of woman who trades sex for drugs, usually crack or coke. Man, I'm so grossed out by all this, I can't do anything but half smile at this kid, mainly just for the size of his bravado. This little motherfucker is a dealer, and maybe a pimp, too. That's where that money came from, the money in my pocket right now. She earned it the hard way. I'm going to call you Watcher, I say to him, because you've been watching. Keep it if you want. Throw it out if you don't. He looks like he's about to talk shit, but he just licks his lips, nods his head back, 
and points his chin at me instead. Watch her, he says, like he's trying to name on for size. Yeah, I say. It's a good one. You take care. I turn and head out. As I'm going, I hear his fresa asking his permission to go get a peanut butter shake at Tom's Burgers. He's starting a sentence with, bitch, shut the fuck up, when I'm getting in the car and peeling the fuck out. The kid watches me go like he's trying to memorize my face, like he thought I just got over on him with the gun sale and with what I said, and he's never going to forget it. kind of laugh then, because, man, I really don't need this shit. L.A. has gone fucking crazy, all the way crazy. When I'm back on the street and going far enough away that no cop can connect me up to the bus, I breathe and think about my day, how my plan didn't really go like I thought, how I should probably just take this here money and run. It has sense to it. I think every guy that ever did anything on the street, even if he did a lot, there's always a gap between how much he wanted to do and how much he actually did. And I'm feeling that right now, feeling like a failure, even though I just made a whole bus my own personal graffiti playground. That shit is going to be a legend when people see it. And people will ask about Ernie. They'll wonder who he was. And for a moment, he'll be alive in their minds. But I'll be gone. People will talk about me for a while after this. I'm sure Fat John and Tortuga will see it. But I still decide to make prints and copies of the photographs and mail them back to them. I think about the bus a bit then. How crazy that luck was. Maybe it's a good goodbye. But maybe it's not a big enough ending. Not over the top enough. People will probably say I ranked out, but whatever. I never signed up for that other thing, that gangster thing. I always just wanted to be free. I just wanted to go all city, hitting Hollywood and downtown and Venice and writing copyrights under my name everywhere I go, like Euler and Decline, because it's my golden time with just turning 17. I figured I had a year of hitting it hard, and if I got caught, how much time could I ever do on graffiti charge? I mean, probably I'd get a couple hundred hours community service and a few weekends of JAWS. That's Juvenile Alternative Work Services. And at worst, I'd do a little bit of juvie. But no county time, nothing serious, nothing on my permanent record. This was my time to take it all the way and be famous, and now it's gone. Just like Ernesto. Something people don't understand about graffiti is it's a way to be somebody. It's a way to piss people off. And it's a way to claim your territory but it's also a way to remember. And I did that last one for Ernesto and the city that killed him. Ernie, R.I.P., the back of that bus says. It's letters, sure, but it means something more. It's a middle finger and a headstone all rolled into one. Thank you for listening to Harper Audio Presents, edited by Sharon Matlin. If you'd like to hear the next excerpt from All Involved, we'll post a clip from Day 6 next Tuesday. And you can hear my interview with Ryan and Days 1 through 5 at Harper Audio Presents. This is Ryan Gaddis, the author of All Involved. Thank you so much for listening, but this isn't the whole story. To learn more of these characters, please check out the unabridged versions in print, audio, and ebook formats. Thank you for listening.